Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, then why would I say I am? Well, I'm already confused. <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. You'll have already worked out. That's not Kev. This is just a little bit of a bonus episode for you. Hello, Shell. How are you? I'm all right. I'm not sure bonus is the right sort of word. I think, <laughs> I think more commiserations or something. But yeah, I am not Kev. I am Shell. Kev is far away. He's okay. He's not been burned to a crisp in the sun, but he, he's all right. Well, he might have been. We've not seen him for a while. Yeah, that's true. The, maybe the heat wave has actually burnt Kev up to a crisp. But no, I am standing in his stead. Mm. So you might remember Shell from our Best Christmas Songs bonus pod a while back. I'm still um, bitter, by the way. Sorry, <laughs> I'd just like to come in here because I'm still bitter. Bitter about what? Because the song that we all voted as the Best Christmas Song won. Yeah, but it shouldn't have, actually, because it should it should have been Slade. Sorry, just going to bring that up now. <laughs> but So we're going to do a little bit of a bonus clash for you. Shell, what are we doing? Well, we're going to have a little look. I think because we've been married for nearly 20 years, we thought we'd have a look at divorce albums. <laughs> um, not, not that this is prescient or anything, but um, yeah, I think, I think it started with me just banging on about rumours a little bit. And then we sort of thought, well, what else could you put that against? So we started having a little think about breakup albums and about um, divorce albums. And so out of that, we decided to put rumours versus Blood on the Tracks. Indeed. Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks from 1975 against the classic Rumours by Fleetwood Mac from the year after in 1976. And, and it, was, it was quite a difficult choice, though, because actually when I started looking at this, there's, there's more albums than you think that are kind of written by some really quite prominent and brilliant artists around breakups, around divorce. Um, so we, we could have gone a few different well, ways. We could have done Abba. We could have done ABBA, but the actual breakup album that they did when they were all divorcing was Super Trooper. So let's not. <laughs> Fine. Uh, and I wanted to do Blood on the Tracks because I like Dylan. Yeah, fair play. Right, shall we do some top trumps? Yes, we should, because I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> uh, so, top trumps, well, you know how the game top trumps works. You uh, pick a fact uh about your album you read it you see if i've done better and uh yeah we go from there six categories whoever wins the most wins uh i as you're my guest on this show i will let you have first pick which category do you want to go for well thank you normally i'm doing this against our son and it's dinosaurs so this is this is something new and different i'm going to go with sales because no one's going to beat rumors well, it was not the best-selling album of all time, so, you Okay, know. sorry, Michael Jackson might be Rumours, but very little else will. So, go on then, have I got to read it out? Well, so, go on then, what did Rumours sell? It's about 40 million. 40 million, yeah, I mean, you've won about yes. about 3 yes, million for Blood on the Tracks. And let's yes. be honest, 3 million copies, that's a very good-selling album. Yes, it is, but it was shat on by Rumours. <laughs> well, yeah, you have the honour, go on, carry on. Okay, so... Right, critic scores. Yep. So I've got All Music, 5 out of 5. Ditto. Rolling Stone, 5 out of 5. Ditto. And Pitchfork, 10 out of 10. Ditto. Ooh. That's a draw. That's a draw. Do we double up now? No, just go on to the next category. <laughs> I, I want to double up. That's why we do with James. <laughs> yeah, we but do we, don't, dinosaurs. We, we don't have more albums I'll see to your compare. Brachiosaurus. <laughs> um, right, okay. Uh, I'm going to go with certifications. I have no idea really what this means, but basically you can't beat US 20 platinum, UK 15 times platinum, etc., etc. Okay, yeah, you've won. So twice exactly. platinum in the US... Platinum in the UK and in Canada. So, well, again, not surprising given the sales figures, but uh, you have comfortably taken that one. Shit, that's what? 2-0 with one draw. Mm-hmm. Not doing well. No. Right, okay. So, charts, number one in the US and number one in the UK. Fuck off. Number one in the US, number four in the UK. Fucking British record buying public in the 70s. Kevin and I have spoken about this before. I, honestly. What? Did no one like the Carpenters? Or was that just my parents? No one likes the Carpenters. Mm. Right, okay, so... So I'm 3-0 down with two to go, so I've already lost. Yes, Can I claw you... back some dignity? Well, I don't really want you to, if I'm honest. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to leave well, you. Again, we've been married nearly 20 years. Yes. I know that now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right, okay. So, uh, you see, awards, I actually think Dylan's going to win some more on that, so I'm going to go for something else. Mm. I'm going to go with Rolling Stone Top 500 2020 number seven. Uh, number nine. What else have you got in lists? I've got Pitchfork. God knows what that is. 41st best album of the 70s. Ooh, fifth best album of the 70s. Yeah. So we're level. All yeah, right. but I'm not having Pitchfork. I'm sorry. I don't give you a level. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. And um, Colin Larkin, all-time top 1,000, which is 31. Get in! Number seven on Colin Larkin's all-time top 1,000. Who's Colin Larkin? He's a music critic who wrote a book about the 1,000 best albums in history. And number seven yeah, on the I'm, list was I'm, Blood on Track. So I've no. won that one. Get in. Okay, fine. <laughs> I, I give you that, even though some dude that lives in, I don't know, possibly Woking or something, you know, woke. no idea who Why he is. Woking? I don't know, but Colin What's Larkin... What's wrong with wo- I, I apologise to any Colin, listeners from Colin Woking. Larkin sounds like he lives in Woking. Do you know where Woking is? Somewhere near London. <laughs> That's what I assume as well. That, that there London somewhere? I don't know, possibly because of Philip Larkin, all I'm thinking of is he's possibly... Was he from Woking? No, no, he's from Yorkshire, I think, but he... No, I'm just thinking that he lives in Woking and he's a librarian. Anyway, so yeah, you won that one. Well, thank you very much. Let's go on to awards then, the last category. All okay. right, so I've got two entries in awards. Blood on the Tracks was voted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2015, and it won the Grammy for Best Album Notes in <laughs> 1976. I'm sorry, the best. The Grammy best notes? album notes, yeah. I, is that, well, you were, I don't know. The best sleeve notes. Okay. Grammy best album 1977. Frankly, I whiff. Well, did you get in the Grammy Hall of Fame? Yes. Okay, fine, you've won. So I've lost, what, th- four one? And a draw. Let's not forget the draw. Well, I'm but not surprised. to be fair, though, they were both perfect albums, according to people I've heard of, like Rolling Stone. Um, and something called Pitchfork, which I think is a Herefordshire thing. No, it's an online tractors. music publication. It's okay. very noteworthy. I'm, um, I'm, right, well, I have heard of Rolling Stone, and they all did very well. To be fair, these are two really good albums. So. They are. I mean, we, we shall find out whether the only reviewers that matter, that being you and I, consider them to be perfect albums, over the course of this Clash stroke Clash is, depending on how long it runs and whether I can bother to split it into two episodes or not. Yeah, very good. And for once, we agree. Right, okay. Shall we move on to start talking about Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to edit it out. It's just going to carry on. <laughs> right, so Blood on the Tracks, Dylan's 15th studio album. It was released on the 20th of January 1975 on Columbia Records. It was recorded over two sessions. First session between September the 16th and the 19th in 1974 at A&R Recording Studios in New York. And then the second set of sessions being between December the 27th and the 30th of 74 at Sound 80 Studios in Minneapolis. And that, that's really interesting though, because it didn't his brother get the session musicians for the second one? Yeah, he did. I thought I just thought I was kind of like really random. Hi, yeah, I don't like that album. It's not going to do well. Uh, go with these guys instead. Well, exactly, exactly, which I'll come on to in a second. The album was produced by Bob Dylan himself. And so the theme of this clash being albums about breakup, albums about divorce, it was written and recorded at a time when Bob Dylan was estranged from his then-wife Sarah Lowndes. They eventually divorced in June of 1977 after a brief reconciliation. Now, Dylan always denied that the songs are autobiographical, so... He said in 1978 that there might be some little part of me which is confessing something which I've experienced, but it's not definitely the total of me confessing anything. He further said in his autobiography that I would even record an entire album based on Chekhov's short stories. Can I just come in here, right? Okay. It's not based on Chekhov. No, it's not based on Chekhov. Because have you read Chekhov? Yeah, it, sadly, it, yes. Yes, it's not based on Chekhov. I've even seen a Chekhov play. Longest three hours of my life. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 not, they're not straightforward. A lot of the songs on this album are very straightforward. Yes, they are. But in a, in a very beautiful way. But anyway, I'll shut up. They're not about Chekhov. They're not about Chekhov. Well, one person who agrees with us would be uh, Bob and Sarah's son, Jacob Dylan, who is lead singer of The Wallflowers. He was quoted by the Wallflowers manager, Andrew Slater, in a New York Times article as saying, when I'm listening to Blood on the Tracks, that's about my parents. Do you know what, though? There's a, the first bit of the quote is, when I'm listening to Subterranean Homesick Blues, I'm tapping along with everyone else. When I listen to this, I'm listening to my parents, like, divorce. I, I just think that's brilliant, because I think 
I mean, he's obviously a very talented musician. I always mm. did like the Wallflowers. They never got big enough, actually, I thought, because they were better. Yeah, I like the Wallflowers. They were decent. <laughs> yeah. he, he's a good musician. Yeah, I, I just, I liked there was a poignancy of that. So I, I don't think Dylan recognised, I think he kept trying to play it down for many years of, oh, yeah, it's not algebraicable. Why would, why would I do that? But then he talks about people liking it and then saying, why would you listen to this pain and stuff? And it's like, yeah, it is, mate. Just, just, just acknowledge it. Absolutely right. Right, okay. So the New York sessions were somewhat fraught, let's say, some quotes from people that were involved in those sessions. Firstly, assistant engineer Glenn Berger. He said, my first session had been with Paul Simon, who could take a year to make a record. And then Dylan came in and appeared not to care about the production at all. He didn't care who the musicians were. There was no producer. It was mind-boggling. He asked Phil to put a band together. And Phil bumped into Eric Weisberg, a great musician who played a lot of folk records, as well as the dueling banjos from the Deliverance soundtrack. You know, the... They, that, so, yeah, Berger says, Eric bought in his band. These musicians were absolutely psyched to work on the new album. I mean, the sessions were fast, so keyboardist Thomas McFall said, I don't remember him saying much at all about the music. Sometimes he'd ask to roll tape before running the song down all the way. He'd even say something like, then there's a bridge. It's like any other bridge. You'll get it. Glenn Berger again. The band is figuring out their parts, and if someone hits a wrong note, Dylan tells them to stop playing. Then two or three takes later, he starts playing a different song without telling anybody, so of course the guys screw up and drop out. The energy in the studio went from incredible excitement to shock and disappointment. He essentially fired the band without giving them a chance to do anything after the first day. Tony Brown, the bass player, was the only one who remained. Tony was just staring at Dylan's hands, trying to figure out the next chord and keep up. There was no warmth or camaraderie. That may have contributed to the intensity of the experience, that those were not happy sessions. Certainly with the record's content and Dylan's marriage breakdown, there were a lot of dark feelings in the room. And I think what I took from from listening to some of these quotes is that, because it it didn't just stop there, you know, there was more session musician change and all the rest of it. It wasn't a happy record and it it wasn't just a subject matter. There's still a lot of bitterness from some of those session musicians Mm -hmm. that weren't credited. And, you know, that's a real shame. Which segues perfectly into my next set of quotes. So he went to spend Christmas in Minneapolis with his family. And he basically started to worry that the album was flawed, that it didn't have the right sound, that it wasn't what he was going for. So he said to his brother, David Zimmerman, put a band together. We're going to go into Studio 80 the day after Boxing Day, although Boxing Day is not a thing in the States. It's the day after Christmas, American listeners. What What is that? In, do they have a day? They don't have a thing, no. That sucks. Yeah. But, but they've got Thanksgiving before Christmas, haven't they? So, you know, it's like a month before Christmas. We, we so. should have both. I'm just going to, I'm going to put... Well, like we some... should give thanks to the to the pilgrims yeah, why not? leaving. That's a good point. They were all fundamentalist Puritans. So, yeah, let's actually, we should have Thanksgiving. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good for giving thanks. If I get a day off and get to eat some turkey and yams, I'm all right with anything. <laughs> anyway, as you said, Dave Zimmerman puts a band together. They re-recorded five of the songs at Sound 80. But... Because Columbia had already printed 100,000 copies of the sleeve, and that sleeve credited the musicians from the New York sessions, the initial run didn't credit the musicians from the Minneapolis sessions. David Zimmerman allegedly promised the musicians that they would get a credit on the next run, but the sleeve has never been changed. And still to this day, if you buy if you buy a copy of the album, it says about the, the, the original session musicians from the New York sessions. So keyboardist Greg Inhofer says, what might have happened if we got credit? Anytime I hear a Dylan song, whether I play it on it or not, it just sticks in my craw and I go, man, what if? What if? Why was I so stupid? Why was I so naive? I was taken advantage of totally. Which is a fair point, to be honest with you. Yep. They just got the standard union day rates for every day they worked on the album and that's it. Yep. Okay, that's about it I've got on background. So... Uh, how did you discover Blood on the Tracks? Well, to be really, really quite frank, although I have heard a couple of the songs of it, the most famous ones really, um, I haven't listened to the whole album before, so I'd heard of it. But I didn't grow up listening to Dylan because nobody in my family liked folk music or anything like that. Um, so this is something I came to as a, as a later adult. So listening to this was listening to it for the first time as a whole album, which was quite interesting actually. And I love the title. You know, it's that double image. You've got the blood on the tracks, which is, you know, the tracks of the music. But you've also got this visual image of blood on the tracks as her. 
I imagined it in my head like a kind of almost railway track with blood sort of spattered across and it's a very visceral image and I really liked that and I think that set for me the tone of the whole album mm. because what you know reading reading him quote about yeah it's not about it's not autobiographical well, of course it is you know, of course it is. You can't. I mean, some of the songs we're going to come on to, it definitely yeah, it, is. It, it is. I mean, you may not realise that. You may not want to acknowledge that. But there was no way in God's green earth you could of, uh, write this album without those emotions. And, and that goes right back to the, the title for me. Mm-hmm. So uh, this this is a new beginning, I suppose, listening to this as a whole album. Yeah, no, it's, it's really good, actually. And I'm, I'm quite grateful for it, for us listening to it because it's... It's a wonderful album, actually. And I was kind of thinking, is it Dylan's best album? And when I was... Whoa, reading... whoa, 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 wait, oh, sorry, wait. I'm sorry. We'll Stream of Consciousness there. All right, fine. I mean, that's a hell of a long-winded way of saying I've never heard it before. <laughs> okay, sorry. You, you know, you can take the girl out of the literature class, but you can't take the you know, literature But you're spot on in a lot of what you say. Uh, and I, I really love what you said about the double meaning of the album title. Um, it is him bearing his soul. It is him spilling his guts onto the tracks. But yeah, there's that double imagery of, uh, of, of, of this, as you say, blood on the railway line. So very well put. Um, I'll be much more brief. I think I've mentioned before, my dad absolutely loves Bob Dylan. So I heard this album for the first time a very, very long time ago. And it stayed with me. It's great. So uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, Shall we talk a little bit about the album cover, the artwork? Okay. So, whoa, describe to me the artwork. Okay, so, I mean, I I didn't look at this too much. I just looked at it. So I don't know what the media was, but I would say that it was largely pastel or something. It was either painted or it's pastels. It's interesting. So it is a photograph. Okay. So, yeah, it's a portrait of Bob Dylan in profile wearing dark glasses. And it does look like a painting. It does look like a pastel painting. You're absolutely right. But it's actually a photo. It's a photo taken by an English amateur photographer called Paul Till uh, at a concert in Toronto in January of 74. The effect on the image was uh, achieved by a technique known as solarizing, which apparently is just briefly exposing the negative to light Light. during development. Till liked the photo so much that he sent it to Bob Dylan's New York office didn't hit anything back and was therefore somewhat surprised to see it rock up on the cover of Dylan's next album. What, really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, gosh, okay. So, yeah, because I, I, I thought it was a painting, yeah. but no, it's a photo. No, it's interesting as well because this is Dylan as a, well, not middle-aged, middle-aged, but I suppose, you know, he wasn't going on. He wasn't the brave new hope of the 60s. He wasn't the voice of the generation that he'd been in 66, 67. This was an older Dylan. And, and that's representative in that, I think, because he is... He is older. He looks sort of tired almost. But um, no, yeah. it's, it's a good photo. It's a good, it's a beautiful piece of art. And the album came out at a time when his career had been in the doldrums. For a decade. A little, not quite, but yeah, yeah a good He'd few been written years. off. He had been written off. He was the voice of a generation and he was mm. very much put down to the 60s and mm-hmm. his time had gone. Yeah. Because, you know, critically, he'd been, the, he'd been in the wasteland really for years. Yeah, no, very much so. All right, should we start going through the tracks? So we start with Tangled Up in Blue. So the version that ends up on the album was recorded in Minneapolis on the 30th of December, 74. It's basically a live cut. No overdubs, it's just recorded as played. I love the fact that it's a live cut. It's basically just, let's play this song. Do we need to do anything else to it? Nah, it's done. We're laughing. I think for me, this is an example of, and and listening to those quotes before, he's an auteur in the same way that Nina Simone was apparently an absolute nightmare to work with. And I think he was in this album. He had this vision of what it should be and he just did it. And God forbid anybody else couldn't keep up with him because it was just how it was in his head. And the fact that, I mean, that's amazing to decode a song like that in one take. It's his voice as well. I mean, Bob Dylan, I think, really cuts through people in terms of you either love him or hate him. He's like Marmite in terms of his vocals. Mm-hmm. But for me, this album, the whole way through, but especially, you know, there's a couple of songs and, and Tangled Up in Blue is one of them, where his vocal is so raw. Yeah, I, I agree completely what you said. 
I don't understand people that just dismiss Dylan as, oh, he can't sing. I mean, nowadays, okay, fine. But in his halcyon days, he sung exactly as he intended to sing his songs. And a lot of the lyrics on Tangled Up in Blue, they aren't so much sung as they're wrapped in staccato almost. This song, it doesn't change. You've got verse, chorus, verse, chorus for nigh on six minutes. But it's got all of the elements that you look for in a Bob Dylan song. It's absolutely classic Dylan. A simple chord structure, a driving rhythm, visceral, guttural lyrics. Uh, I think it's brilliant. And it's tight as well. I mean, again, yes, I'm is. sorry, I can't, help, I can't help that come at this as a literature student. He has this internal rhyme scheme. It's so, so tight. When you look at it, if you if you look at the lyrics of a Bob Dylan song, it, it it's it's wonderful, and the fact that he adds it to music is incredible because his his music and the chord structure he brings adds that other dimension. Mm-hmm. But stripped back, it's just a wonderful piece of lyrical poetry. Yes, so it's interesting. You said it's tight, and you were talking about lyrically. My immediate thought turned to the band because it does sound tight. It's a first take of Incredible. a band that only came together for four days of a, of a set of sessions. And you listen to this, and it is tight. They do sound tight. They do sound like a band that's been playing together for years. I think it's... They never got any credit on the album, but my God, what a talented bunch of musicians worked on this album. Well, this brother obviously had something over there in Minneapolis. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Should we move on? All right, simple twist of fate. So, for me, again, this is this is poetry set to music. Mm-hmm, um, definitely. Now, what really struck me, and I, I'm not a musician, I can say, but I'm not a musician, but I would have thought that this is the sort of thing that you would do in a minor key, because if you listen to it, it's, it's you know it's about twist of fate. It's it's quite sad. It's a doomed relationship. A lot of musicians would have gone for a minor chord. He plays it in a major chord, and mm-hmm. then he brings in the minor chord occasionally, and it's bloody brilliant, and I don't know how you would conceive of it, if I'm honest. It just brings to me how good he was. Yeah, I agree. So it's one that was recorded in New York on the 19th of September. It is just Dylan and Tony Brown on the bass. And it, again, just simple. You've got six verses. You've got a really, really beautiful melody. Again, I'm going to speak to what I said about, about Dylan's vocals. I think he sings it just as he intends. He can hit the notes when he needs to hit the notes. He can be a bit more laconic when he wants to be laconic. Um, Good word. It's a lovely song. There's a real melancholy to the lyrics. So it's about a one-night stand. that meant a lot more to the man than it did to the woman. Some people have speculated that it's actually about a, a, a prostitute given that he looks for her on the docks. But the lyrics in the last verse, she was born in spring, but I was born too late. Blame it on a simple twist of fate. It just, it's a lament to infatuation, if you like. And that comes across in the way it's performed. It only needs a guitar and a bass and some classic Dylan harmonica in there. It's beautifully performed. Yeah. <laughs> what he said. <laughs> you see, every so often I can come up with something profound. Only if you're talking about music. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. <laughs> okay, track three. You're a big girl now. Not the charlatan song of the same name no. from Telling Stories. No. This was recorded in Minneapolis on the 27th of December 74, so the first day of those sessions. It's another lament. This time, it's about seeing an ex-lover who has moved on. And it's it's a counterpoint and a nod to the very famous Just Like a Woman from 1966. Um, so the lyric, and I'm back in the rain, oh, oh, is a counterpoint to the lyric from Just Like a Woman, nobody feels any pain tonight as I stand inside the rain. But it's not oh, oh, it's screamed. Yes. And I love this. Talk about visceral sounds. He doesn't sing it so much as howl it. Mm-hmm, yeah, and it's 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 just this scream of of pain. I mean, how the hell you record that? I do not know. But it that is what I take away from this is I can change. I swear. And then he's just screaming in in mm. agony. So I mean, how you can ever say this is not a personal record? I do not know because you cannot make that sound. 
if it's not. No, a, a very, very good point. And I like I like the juxtaposition. You, you can look at this as a partner piece to Just Like a Woman, but whereas, whereas that is talking about a girl who acts like a grown woman, but is in fact just a little girl, as the lyrics say, this completely flips the tables. It's the woman who's grown, and he's left standing in the rain. He's the immature one. He's the one that can't deal with it. Yeah, really powerful lyrically. I have to say, I find the arrangement a little bit too simplistic on this one. I think this is one that could do with a bit more than you get. It's a little bit country. Uh, uh, Okay, well, I think that works for it. Sometimes Bob does sway into the country. We'll beat this up a little bit oh later God, on. Yeah, le, 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 le. yeah. I hate that song. And well, you don't like country, and I think that's what comes across. But the best thing about country is you strip it back. And for me, I love this song because actually, yeah, he is the immature one. He's been a bit of a dick, and he's acknowledging that, and he's stripping it back, and it's raw, and he's screaming in pain. And country does that really well. So I like the li- I like the simplicity. Okay, it, it works for me. Fair enough. So you talked about howling, you talked about pain and anguish and screaming the lyrics out. So let's go on to Idiot Wind. <laughs> right, okay, I'm just going to put this out there. Okay. The, the, this isn't my favourite. It has got the rawness, but uh, I, there's one song I, I want to skip. It's this one because it just feels really bloody spiteful. <laughs> it is really and, bloody spiteful. And maybe, maybe I'm just being a little bit feminist and I'm just like, shut up. <laughs> you know, I just I just have this sort of reaction where I'm just like, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's, it's hard to listen, and maybe that's because it's hard to listen to, but it's just not my favourite. I just, I don't want to listen to it. I don't want to hear this spite. I just think it's silly and petty and grow the heck up. It was quoted as one, I think it was The Guardian that quoted as, as one of his greatest lyrics. So I know a lot of people disagree with me. I just think it's a bit petty. Sorry. So I see exactly where you're coming from. It is petty. It is full of spite. It is full of bitterness. You can literally hear the bile dripping off his tongue. But I... I was going to say, you love it, don't you? God, I love this because of the fury. Okay, so it starts off talking about him being hounded by gossip columnists. So someone's got it in for me. They're planting stories in the press. But it doesn't take long before it does turn into a rant against, I'm going to assume, Sarah Lowndes. And just the chorus, idiot wind, blowing every time you move your teeth. You're an idiot, babe. It's a wonder you still know how to breathe. Yeah, I was going to... I just don't like that. That's just petty. No, I can see that. To be fair, the very last verse... Yeah, they're both Which is like verse 10 or I something. Mean, like how, how the hell can we both live? I'm there is some so. contrition. Yeah, <laughs> You'll much. never know the hurt I suffered, nor the pain I rise above. But you just told I'll us never to know up. the same about you, God help your holiness you. or your kind of love. And it makes me feel so sorry. All right, sound well in, Bob. Yeah, no. <laughs> I get it. I get it completely. We all feel like that. I just don't want to put it on an album and listen to it. So as I say... It's hard to listen to, but for me, it's the, the track that I'm least... I, I don't want to listen to it. It's... I, I like the way it just starts with him. Someone's got it in for me. There's no intro. There's just bang with the lyric. It's Okay, I get it because it is so blatant, but I love it. Sorry, I'm, I'm going a bit feminist here. No, I'm I just, get it. I just, it's fine. I just kind of come out going... Nah, I'm pretty sure you were a bit of a dick as well, mate. Well, yeah. Well, we'll get to that on a later song as well. Just in terms of the way it's performed and the way it's sung, it reminds me of Like a Rolling Stone. Uh, it has a similar tone, I think, to that song. You're probably going to hate this, but right, it really reminds me of Alanis Morissette. In... Oh, fuck off! No, I knew you were going to say that. But you ought to know, right? Because... This is going on Twitter, yeah. and I'm going to give them your fucking Instagram handle to mock you mercilessly. I don't give a shit. No. <laughs> Because, and, I, and I'm sorry, I stand by my love of Alanis, but You Ought to Know is one of the few songs I can think of. Because when I'm singing it, you have to sing it with such bile and such, you know, fuck you-ness. But I like that song because I think maybe, I don't know, I don't know. If it's just So you like that song, which is bitterness yeah. against the next lover, but not yeah, this no. one, which is bitterness against the next lover. I know, which is why I'm saying lover. maybe I'm just coming out for the sisters here. So, I, so, I can't help it. So, so You Ought to Know is better than Idiot Wind. Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that I might prefer it a little bit, even though I acknowledge that Dylan was a better lyricist and writer. 
it reminds me of that because that's one of the few songs I can think of that have got that level of fuck you, I hate you and want you to die. And that, and so is this. No, that's that's my point. I'm okay. just saying they're, they're, it's the only song you're saying. What does it remind you of? And I was saying that's the only thing I can think of. It reminds me of. All right, fair enough. In the in that it's completely one sided and very vitriolic. There's a difference. This is good. And you're going to say that. Said it's not. 20 years of marriage, <laughs> darling. I think it's brilliant. But anyway, fine. Agree to disagree. I'm right. It's my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. You're going to make me lonesome when you go, Shell. Oh, Which right. after this discussion might not be that long away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'd be lonesome though, love. I think you'd be in the pub. <laughs> true. Anywho. So, lyrics again. I, ca- I can't get, ever get away from Dylan being a brilliant lyricist and a brilliant poet. It's the essence of new love, but he's always tinged. This is the thing with Dylan. It's the lightest, simplest song probably on the album for me, but and the guitar is quite breezy almost, but it's still it's sort of tinged with that inevitability of pain. It's always about this darkness within, so it is brilliant. It's a beautiful song. Okay. I like it, but it doesn't resonate with me as much as anything we've heard so far. You just want to be angry. No, 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 that's not true, because I I will refer you to my beautiful soliloquy around A Simple Twist of Fate, actually. So I I reject your oversimplification of my psyche. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and relate will be counselling you in the morning. Um. It just, I say, it doesn't resonate with me as much as previous ones. It's a very, very simple arrangement. It's a very, very simple chord structure. Some of the lyrics annoy me a little bit. Like what? So there's a reference to the French poets Paul Verlaine and uh, I knew Arthur you were going to pick up on this. They had a very brief affair and it was all very intense. And, that, and then one of them like, shot the other one. And, but yeah. Dylan says that my relationships are like Verlaine and Rambo. And well, we can all dream, fine, darling. Fine, okay. I, it, is it a little bit pretentious? It is a little bit pretentious. Well, yeah. yes, it is a little bit pretentious, but I, I like that. I like the fact that he is quoting that sort of thing because it's a bit arcane. It's a little bit off there. No, I, I like it. I, I I like the breeziness of the chord structure. It's really simple, and that's a nice change. I think for me, it's it, as I say, it's probably the most uplifting and simplistic of of everything. But yeah, okay, it's a little bit pretentious, perhaps. But the guy is a genius, so he's allowed. Okay, fine. I say I don't dislike it, but it is a bit pretentious. It, okay. It's another one uh, from the New York sessions. It also just has Dylan and Tony Brown playing the bass. Uh, apparently, it was covered in 2012 by Miley Cyrus. Yes, it was. Uh, I have nothing wrong else. With that. Uh, well, fine. I haven't heard it, so I can't comment. Uh, I have nothing else to say about it. Okay, moving on then. Meet me in the morning. Blues. Fucking I hell love the yes. Blues. Oh my god. I bet you know this, but Jack White performed it with him, I think 2007. Yep. The first and only live performance of this song I believe so. ever at a show Which, in Nashville. Okay, you would know that bit, but Jack, because um, obviously he loves the blues and he loves strip back performances and stuff. He's done some really cool stuff, actually. But it's it's the most sort of blues song. I think it's the only real blues song on the album. Yeah, it is a very simple 12-bar blues. It's got all the filth and sluttiness and sultriness of something that you hear in a dive bar in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Roadhouse. I was I was going to say you, you were kind of going down a dark alley there <laughs> with your brain. Yeah, it was, a, it was a piece of music for another song that he, he did earlier called Call Letter Blues, but he mm-hmm. rewrote the entire lyric. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, I like it because it's blues. I mean, you can't go wrong with 12-bar blues for me. Nope, I agree entirely. Yeah, so, it's great. A couple of other facts. It is the only song on the album which features the full Deliverance band from the New York Sessions. It was, reco- it was recorded again. It's another one recorded as live in a single take. Uh, on the first day of those sessions, 16th of September, 74. Apparently, Mick Jagger showed up at A&R Studios and suggested that he do an overdub of the slide guitar part, uh, but it didn't sound very good, so they binned it off. <laughs> and I'm delighted by that, because I think that slide guitar solo at the end is fucking everything to this song. That's where, the, the as I say, the grubbiness comes into it. I, just, <laughs> I fucking love the blues. I think this is brilliant. It is good. Yeah, I mean, I, I like Dylan's Blues, and it's the only one on here that's really bluesy. Yeah, but I, I agree. And you can understand why Jagger wanted to play on it, because tonally, it sounds like it could fit yeah. so easily on Let It Bleed, for yeah, example. Yeah, no, I can see that. Um, yeah, it's a great tune. Love it. 
uh, as I do the next one, Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts. Right. Com- I'm sorry, I'm just a- going to come in on this because I freaking love this song. I never heard it before until I started doing this. I love it because I love narrative. I love a narrative ballad. I blame Nick Cave. I blame Tennyson. I had to listen to it like three times before I understood who had killed who. It was yeah. more complicated than Agatha Christie. Yeah. But it's probably the best narrative song I've ever heard. I, I love it. So I just it's, love it. It's really interesting you said Nick Cave, because I've said Johnny Cash. Oh, no, no, no. I also, the rhythm reminds me of Johnny Cash. I yeah. put that down as well, because I was like, the doom, 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 doom. I get Right, so the rhythm reminds me of Johnny Cash, but just the narrative ballad bit of somebody murdering somebody else, you know, I immediately... Well, again, Johnny Cash. Well, yeah, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of murder, death, kill, but... Yeah, no, Johnny Cash, and, but I love narrative poetry. Um, well, I, I, I love I love a... Well, a story. A, a story song. A, story a song, song that tells a story. Yeah. And as you said, that's what it is. It's a Western, Absolutely. basically. So it's set in a cabaret Spit bar. And you've got gambling. You've got betrayal and duplicity. You've got a drunk judge. You've got a hanging. Uh, you've got a bank heist. You've got 15 verses, as you said, of narrative storytelling, which takes a little bit of time for you to figure out what it's telling you but ah oh, just it's, it's brilliant great, isn't it? eight minutes and 52 seconds of storytelling perfection yeah and they cut at least one verse yes there was a 16th verse recorded at the, the so the version that you hear on the album uh, was recorded in minneapolis on the 30th of december there was a version recorded in the new york sessions on the 16th on the first day with the whole band there that had a 16th verse so yeah, fair play. But Joan Bayers, she covered it, which I always find quite interesting because obviously, you know, she went out with Dylan and recorded a very good breakup album. So she she recorded this, I think, in 1975, actually, or 1976. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much current with it. And she recorded it with the, with the 16th verse. And this is another one that was only ever played live once in 1976 as a duet with Joan Bayers. Mm. I, th- I think you and I should sing this because it would be really quite cool. I can't imagine anyone other than Dylan singing this song. It's great. It's it's just brilliant. I, earworms. I'll tell you what. tell you about earworms. This was another one that I just... It, it was a mixture of the kind of like Johnny Cash-like, uh, the melody in the background, but also... There's definitely that, the rolling train rhythm. Yeah, yeah, just... yeah. I mean, it is, it's just so evocative and you suddenly find yourself in a bar spitting sawdust and, you know, who's in the background serving rock gut whiskey or something. But yeah, it's it's brilliant. And it just sticks in your head. Oh, it's so good. It's the, the refrains that that he comes out with. It just sticks in your head. Mm-hmm. I just love this song. No, it's great. I, I, I agree with you entirely. But let's move on, however, to If You See Her, Say Hello. Uh, another one recorded on December the 30th in Minneapolis. I can't say that fucking word. You really can't say that. Is that how many beers have you had? Uh, not that many. I've okay, just, you just can't say Minneapolis. Yeah, I used to have a problem saying the word facetious. But then you had so much practice with our children and then you learned to say facetious. <laughs> Which you just failed to do. <laughs> I have had beer. So, we went through Idiot Wind. This one is a complete lyrical contrast to Idiot Wind. This one's about regret. It's about longing. It's about admiration. It's about, it's another lament to a lost love about not being able to move on from that lost love. If you get close to her, kiss her once for me. Always have respected her for doing what she did and getting free. Whatever makes her happy, I won't stand in the way. Though the bitter taste still lingers on from the night I tried to make her stay. Wow. Well, you you just read that like a poem, and that's what it is. Again, the tight structure, the internal rhythms, the internal rhymes, it's it's lovely. And yes, you're right, it it does kind of provide a very good second reference almost to when he's vitriolic. Um, You know, he's, he's now putting himself in the frame as much as Sarah or whoever. It's so bittersweet. I, I like that word. Bittersweet is right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a lovely, lovely song. Uh, couple of things I want to say about the arrangement. I really like the arrangement. There's a 12-string guitar on there, and I love the sound of a 12-string. It's great. I'm sure I can hear a mandolin in there somewhere as well. But what finishes it off for me is the Hammond organ. It's, Ooh, I love a Hammond organ. It's really subtle. It's not overstated. It's just a bed to the song. But it's there, and it, as I said, finishes it off brilliantly. A really, really good arrangement, this. Yeah, I agree. 
Okay, we are just two tracks from the end, and the penultimate one is Shelter from the Storm. This is another one uh, recorded in New York on the 17th of September. It's just Bob Dylan and Tony Brown. I mean, we talked about storytelling songs on Lily Rose, Me and the Jack of Hearts. This is something else because you've got jumps in time and yeah it's so it's a it's a it's about the end of a relationship but it's not linear at all it it, it, but it just coalesces and comes together into the story of someone who was rescued come in she said i'll give you shelter from the storm loved and then ultimately betrayed and hurt by a woman it's just wow okay i'm i come at this again slightly differently in terms of the poetry because there's some imagery going on that I started thinking of medieval crusades. I know it sounds a bit bizarre. <laughs> Shut up. But he, he did convert to Christianity and I don't know whether it's deliberate or not, but there's, there's some references here about twas in another lifetime, there was blackness, there was wilderness. It's this kind of got this medieval... Biblical. It is biblical. It's medieval crusader stuff. It's <sighs> shelter against the storm of... You can read it as an allegory. You can see it as this religious imagery, but it's it's not. I'm not saying it is, but it's obviously a complex story mm. and it is obviously about a woman as well, but there's, it's, it's definitely got this sort of poetic feel to it. As a, as a song but then it's got this refrain in it the shelter from the storm but it works as a as a ballad it works on about three different levels as a different kind of poem structure and it's amazing yeah i agree it's incredible and this is the one above all others on this album that i would point out to people who say well dylan couldn't sing fuck off yes he could yeah, absolutely this this could only be bob dylan he could sing so well that he masked how well he sang and his lyrics were were the the foremost part of what he did mm. and his voice his voice was just this the messenger his voice was the the, the vehicle he did what he needed to do almost and the, the rawness and the emotion that he brings to it He's not Pavarotti and he doesn't need to be. You know, he's... No. I really want to hear Bob Dylan sing Ness and Dorma now. Okay, but that would be different. But it's, it's the way he delivers it. Uh, no, it is. It is the way he delivers it. Absolutely right. It's great. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to the album's closing track, Buckets of Rain. Again, it was recorded with just Bob Dylan and Tony Brown during those New York sessions. And as a contrast to everything else on the album this isn't necessarily a song about breakup it's just a a simple love song about devotion Um, life is sad life is a bust all you can do is what you must you do what you must do and you do it well i do it for you honey baby can't you tell what an ending to the album this is yeah Uh, the guitar part the finger-picked riff that is the bedrock of this song it's gorgeous and it allows the vocal to just walk all over the song and show you how this man is bearing his soul like you said again it's poetic it, wow yeah i mean i'm i'm not a musician as i always say but the for me it's the emotion that comes from his performance and it's it, the words are actually really simple you know there's quite complex lyrics at times but this isn't this is really simple and again it's the it's the bearing the soul he lists this whole thing about he loves about this woman you know she's amazing she's wonderful and then he says oh everything about you is bringing misery yeah he just can't help it almost that's what i always keep coming back to with this album is for every little bit of joy there's a black cloud on mm-hmm. the silver lining almost it's that that's just this this album truly and it's a wonderful closing piece to the album it is it is i agree uh it is the third track on this album that was only ever performed live once uh at a concert in detroit in november 1990 where dylan opened the show with it i mean it's a bold that's, thing that's to a open a show with. Opener. <laughs> yeah especially in detroit <laughs> what you think he should have done fuck the police well i don't know <laughs> I really what are you doing dylan or a cover of a new kid's song it's 1990 hanging tough all right well we are at the end of the album shall we do some reviews Shall okay. I take us through some reviews? All right, okay. So it was not universally loved initially. Mm. So Rolling Stone published two reviews 
The first by Jonathan Cole, which is a five-star review, said it was Dylan's magnificent new album. But John Landau said that the record had been made with typical shoddiness. Bit harsh. I, I was going to say, you know, the way that some of these were taken in one take, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that's shoddiness. I think, I think that's the wrong word. Well, let's have a so another review. And Nick Kent in the NME described the accompaniments as often so trashy they sound more like practice takes. Fuck off. Yeah, just I just, just harsh. talked about the fact that some of the single take tracks they sound really tight and they sound like a band that's been playing together for ages. So now nah, you're full of shit, you Nick Kent. I mean, it's the fucking enemy. What do you expect? Well, I have heard of them at least. <laughs> Uh, other critics loved it. Uh, however, uh, uh, even Nobby McGee, uh, Robert Criscall, writing in the Village Voice, said Dylan's new stance is as disconcerting as all the previous ones. I've no idea what the fuck he means by that, but it's Nobby. What do you expect? But the quickest and deepest surprise is in the music itself. By second hearing, its loveliness is almost literally haunting an oral deja vu. What? There are moments of anger that seem callow, and the prevailing theme of interrupted love recalls adolescent woes, but on the whole, this is the man's most mature and assured record. I mean, you could literally get that review down just to the last sentence there, Nobby, but no, you've got to prattle on for fucking ages about how clever you are. But he liked it, so there you go. Well, I was going to say, is that that not what, you know, we all do as reviewers, whatever, we do like the sound of our own voices, do we not? And most of them get, you know, paid Do for not defend column. Nobby McGee. I don't know who Nobby McGee is. Robert Criscow is our nemesis. Oh. <laughs> I thought he was like some kind of like singer in a band called No, he, he's, a, he's a, a renowned critic who uh, pontificates a lot. Because we don't do that. Fuck off! I'm nothing like Nobby. <laughs> anyway, so um, I don't know. I, I think the mixed reviews, I can kind of see it because it was different to his 60s stuff when he become, you know, he became so famous and it hasn't got that kind of sub- sub- subterranean hopes it blues or something like that it's a totally different album but it's wonderful i think it speaks to where he was in his career at the time Absol- that people were more mature. at this well no uh, sorry the reviews i mean okay I, I think that a lot of critics were predisposed so i'm gonna refer back and bear with me here i'm going to refer back to one of our earliest clashes where we went through be here now and we talked about the glowing reviews that received initially because a lot of critics had been not as glowing about morning glory which then became a massive seller you know huge zeitgeist album so to speak so everyone literally everyone when be here now came out gave it you know incredibly glowing reviews despite the fact that it was shit it was rubbish and I think this is the counter to that. This is someone who has become unfashionable, someone who's become a bit of a pastiche of their former yeah. self. So his, his politics were so very popular. Yeah, at well, time. no, he, he he was refusing to sing about political issues at this time. That's half the point. And so it became de rigueur for reviewers to go Dylan bash. Yeah, Dylan exactly d- d- Dylan bash. So, um, but Nobby didn't, and I always hate it when I agree with Nobby. So let's move on. Okay, fair enough. I was just going to say, I think with the benefit of time and with younger audiences, this the rawness probably speaks to it. I'm not sure, you know, the mid seventies. If you have to, th- if you think about what's going on musically as well, this was so raw. Mm-hmm. It was probably quite jarring in a way. And I, I think with the benefit of hindsight, and I think with younger audiences who are perhaps more used to people laying bare their souls, I think this really speaks to that. That's a very interesting point, actually. Thank yeah. you. I, d- I do have little moments, do I not? I never said you didn't. You don't need to be so spiky. Just because I like Idiot Wind and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm still I'm still raw over Alana, sweetie. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> All right, just a tiny little bit on legacy. I mean, because I'm not going to go through Bob Dylan's legacy because it's Bob Dylan. You can't. He, he found God in the 80s and became shite and then released a Christmas album, which was abominable. <laughs> yeah, we definitely don't talk about <laughs> no. that. But as you just said, it is now widely regarded as one of, if not the best uh, of Dylan's albums. And it's certainly marked a, a return to form uh, after a few lacklustre years. Although, as I just alluded to, those lacklustre years were nothing compared to his 80s Christian folk period, which were just bad. Thank God for the Travelling Wilburys rescuing Bob Dylan, by the way. 
Uh, and the last thing I'll say on Legacies, apparently there is a film adaptation of the album currently in pre-production under direction of Luca Guadagnino. So, there you go. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else to say on the legacy of Blood and Tracks? It's Bob. <laughs> He's great. Uh, okay, what's your best song? What's your worst song? Well, obviously I don't like Idiot Wind particularly. So you're saying Idiot Wind is the worst song on this album? Yep. Oh my God. Fine, okay. I'm, I'm, I know, as I said, many people have quoted it, including The Guardian, as some of his best lyrics. I just don't like it. I find it petty. And I need you to grow up now, Bob, and let it go. But, okay, Harder is, is the best because I think the song I, I rap lyrical most about is Rosemary and Lily and the Jack Arts and mm-hmm. Lily, Rosemary and the Jack Arts, sorry because it's a narrative I don't know if it's his best song I just think I love it the most Okay, uh, good choices Well, a good choice for your best song, uh, at least Right, I- Thanks I'll... for your patronising tone there, love Well, there you go I'll, I'll, that's, I mean, okay nearly 20 years of marriage, you'd be used to it by now <laughs> Nope, just ignore you <laughs> I'll do my worst song first as well and it's you're gonna make me lonesome when you go. As <sighs> I said at the time, it, it just doesn't resonate with me like everything else on this album does. I don't dislike it. Far from it. It's just it gets lost in and amongst the brilliance of the rest of the album. That's what I'll say. You're wrong. <laughs> uh, my best song. I mean, I'm really tempted to choose Idiot Wing. I'm really, what, really just tempted to, to choose Idiot Wing. No, because it's fucking brilliant. Uh, but I'm actually not. I'm going to choose Meet Me in the Morning because I love me some blues. I love me some slutty guitar work. And that's got all of it. So, yeah, Meet Me in the Morning. It's fucking brilliant. Okay. All right, then. I, I guess we're about done on Blood on the Tracks. So that just about wraps things up then for the first part of our bonus pod. Uh, we'll be back next week with part two, where we take you through Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. Before I go, the last thing for me to do is just remind you how you can keep in touch with us across the socials. So, you may be on Twitter. You may be a television presenter and the daughter of a baron who recently posted a story about eating one of your own AirPods because you mistook it for a vitamin tablet. So whilst you're busy making up stories for clout on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Clash Album. If you like carefully created quality content, you can follow us on Insta at Clash Album, or if you want to send me an old school email and or sign me up for all sorts of dodgy things on the dark web, then you can do so via albumclash at gmail.com. Yeah, as I say, back next week. Hope you've enjoyed this. Sorry we've been away for a while. We will be back with regular shows in the near future. Um, But yeah, back with part two next week. Bye-bye now.